Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. So we continue in our series, Rhythms and Roots. Just as a reminder, uh, this series is really it's about uh, our spiritual formation. It's about the foundations and the practices of our lives that enable us to grow strong, to strength, to reinforce our faith, and to live uh, more uh, the way that we desire and the way that God has designed us to do. In one sense, these are a lot of instructions, duties that God has given to us in the Word. But as we think about these things as duties, sometimes our minds begin to shut down, realizing we have so many things that we already are doing, that one more responsibility, one more thing just feels like it's going to be uh, that brick that's going to cause the entire structure of our lives to collapse. But the Scripture, while giving us commands, also tells us that these are to be practices, rhythms built into our lives that actually interact with one another, and we continually check to see whether we are in rhythm. And through practicing and adopting these rhythms, we are renewed and strengthened and able to continue on, not just to continue on for another day, but continue on appropriating joy in the life that is uh, available all around us. This morning as we come, we look at the rhythm of rest and our text that we are considering comes from Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. So let's go to the Lord's word now, uh, that he may instruct us. Hear the word of God. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any uh, but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. May the Lord give us understanding from his word. Let's go to God in prayer now. Our Father, as we commit ourselves to this word, we do pray that you would be at work by your spirit to open both our minds and our hearts to receive what you have recorded for us to understand. We give thanks to you for giving us your word and pray now that you would enable us not only to understand and to remember the story, but to be nourished by the truths that are contained and revealed here, that our faith and our lives might be built strong and strongly upon Christ. For it is in Him and Him alone that we find the hope that we desire, and He is the Word incarnated. So Lord, we pray that you would be at work even as we commit ourselves to hearing your voice during this message. We pray all things in Jesus. Amen. Mechanical advances during World War II allowed pilots to push their aircrafts to what were then considered breakneck speeds. But one thing they discovered is as the pilots were approaching 760 miles per hour, their airplanes would begin to experience what one pilot described as feeling like it was possessed. The fuselage would begin to shake and the controls would no longer respond uh, with the sensitivity that they had and that were necessary. And the pilots described the sensation of this as if they were hitting a wall. Now, the wall that they were hitting was 
they were hitting the sound barrier. And as the plane was always moving forward and the force of the plane would always create waves that would go out before it, as they were reaching these new speeds, the speeds of the sound barrier, the plane was actually flying faster than the waves in which they were creating. And while previously the plane would push those waves out in front of them and fly unimpeded, now they were actually piercing the very waves that they were creating. And the waves were now barraging the planes itself, causing significant difficulty and damage, and even in some tragic situations, tearing the very airplanes apart. Now, the aeronautical engineers at the time realized they had a difficulty, and what they essentially did was redesign the entire physical structure of an airplane in order to be able to withstand these increasing speeds, not only that the planes were flying, but which they, had, they hoped to continue uh, to be able to reach. And so they decided that one of the things they needed to do was to thin down the wings to what seemed to be a foolish fragility. And then they moved the wings back and they tilted them to an angle so that as the plane was flying at these speeds, that the wings which were now thinner and angled would be able to knife through the air to continue to keep them aloft and enable them to continue to go faster and faster. And then the design of the airplane, at least in the front end, from an aesthetic standpoint, but from a functional also changed. Because in the day, they considered the subtle roundedness of the front of an airplane to be something that was pleasing and, and appealing. And yet, they changed this to what they called a pointed beak. And so the planes no longer were rounded and smooth, but now came to a point but while they were flying, the point actually was punching a hole in the waves that were causing turbulence and pushing the, air, air, uh, the waves away from them, enabling them to continue in their flight and continue in their mission. One thing it's important for us to recognize, though, is that it's not only aircrafts that find difficulty in speed, but warp speed also warps souls. And the pace and the pressure of the life that we live in our culture, day to day, brings each of us face to face with our own wall. And just as the plane was increasing pressure by its speed, we through our lives and pouring ourselves into our work, our studies, whatever it is that we're pouring ourselves into, continually pick up speed as the world around us also picks up speed. We feel compelled to do that because we feel like if we don't continue to go at the speed of the culture around us, we're going to get run over. But many of us have experienced the burnout or the wipeout or the feeling of brokenness because we realize we cannot continue at the pace and at the speed and creating the pressure around us where we are. Some of us have experienced breakdowns where we just can't function for a time. Other of us have been on the brink of it or know people who have. And we want desperately for something else to change but we are fearful that we can't stop. And so we continue at the pressure and our very lives and the very culture in which we live in continues to barrage us with its waves pressuring us as well, threatening to, threatening to crush us. And unlike the aeronautical engineers, we don't have the option of redesigning our entire physical structure. Now, there are certain things that we can do that enable us at least to some degree to help. Obviously, that the diet, exercise, those are things that enable us to withstand certain stresses, at least for a longer period of time. But in the end, it's only a matter of degree. Because if you go fast enough, if you go long enough, if you go hard enough, and if you are in this world long enough, the pressures will ultimately cause a sense of collapse. 
one of the things that we who are children of the Creator can rejoice in is that we are told that the fast lane is not the only lane, and it's not the only lane that matters. In fact, our Creator has prescribed that we take regular and frequent pit stops. He calls them the Sabbaths. God's own law testifies to this because as God was telling us how our lives are to be lived, He says this, Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On that day you shall not do any work, you nor your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so the Lord has built into the rhythm of our lives, the way that we are to live, the way that we are to follow him, as with a, a pit stop every week, one day in seven, that we take time and we withdraw from the work that consumes us day in and day out and find ourselves in his presence seeking to rest and to be restored. Seems simple enough. And yet if you've been around church, particularly evangelical and conservative churches for any length of time, you may be like me, and when anybody starts talking about this whole concept of Sabbath-keeping, it makes your spirit begin to curdle like uh, milk that's been out of the refrigerator for too long. Just because of the misconceptions, just because of the foolishness, and sometimes just because of the ugliness that seems to get associated with this command that God has given to us that we take some time to rest. The text that we read is a vivid illustration of misunderstanding, misapplication, and yet clear instruction for us about God's love, God's grace, God's intent for us in these pit stops, in these day of rest. Now basically, as we look at the text, we see that the scene, if we were going to be filming this as a movie, you see Jesus with his disciples just kind of walking through a field, and it just happened to be on a Sabbath day. Now, the day at the time, according to the Mishnah, a day's walk, at least an appropriate day's walk, according to the tradition of the law, was three-fourths of a mile. Any individual was allowed to work, walk up to three-fourths of a mile. Not at one time, but that was a cumulative number of steps that you were allowed to take on, the day, on, on a Sabbath day. Scattered around different towns, you would find people who had not budgeted their steps enough, and if they didn't make it all the way home from the place of worship, they would just kind of plop down, they would wait till sunset when the Sabbath was over, and then they would walk home. Apparently, they had not budgeted themselves very well. But here we see the disciples that are out walking, and they apparently were within the acceptable number of steps still, because the Pharisees, who really like to be nitpicky, nobody ever, they didn't challenge them that you have gone over your three-quarters of a mile. But they were challenged in the fact that while they were walking, they were picking up grain. Now, we don't even know why the disciples were out there or, or what they were doing, but we know that they were out there and we're told that they were picking grain as they were walking along. They weren't out there gardening, but just as anybody might do as they're walking through a field where the grass is high and you see the, the heads on the grass or in the grain, 
they would put their hand down, they'd scoop it in between their fingers, the heads of grain would be snapped off and they would have them, and as it was grain, they would perhaps snack on the, on the grain as they were walking, or at least put the uh, tall grass in between their teeth and walk along, and they were walking along talking, leisurely. We're not told anything specifically what they were doing, other than they were picking the grain. A New Testament scholar, William Lane, has an interesting perspective on this because he says the action of the disciples plucking the heads of grain as they passed through the field on the Sabbath walk, the action itself was wholly legitimate. Here's what Lane describes. He says, the Mosaic law provided explicitly that when you come into your neighbor's standing grain, then you may pluck the ears with your hands, but you must not bring a sickle into your neighbor's standing grain. The disciples' conduct here came under critical scrutiny by the Pharisees only because it was occurred on the Sabbath. The action of plucking grain was interpreted as reaping because it was on the Sabbath, an act that was in violation of the Sabbath rest. Reaping on the Sabbath was formally prohibited by the Mosaic Law. And in the 39 main categories of work forbidden on the Sabbath by the Mishnah, the Jewish tradition, reaping was number three. That was the number three no-no to do on, on the day of the Sabbath. And so their practice itself was, was nothing wrong with what they were doing. You're allowed to walk through your neighbor's yard and you're allowed to pick with your hand the, the grains. You're just not allowed to bring tools to be cutting the things down. You're not allowed to harvest without his permission. But because they were doing it on the Sabbath, it automatically then qualified, at least in the minds of the Pharisees, according to the tradition, that they were harvesting by picking things up with their fingers. And so they were challenged on that. Now, one thing, whenever I read this, it always comes to my mind, is I'm wondering what in the world were the Pharisees doing out in the middle of the field in the first place? I mean, they were supposed to be budgeting their steps to only three-quarters of a mile. Were they taking a shortcut home and deciding, hey, today this will be a better route. Oh, I've exhausted my steps. I'm just going to sit here in the middle of the field. And even if that was the case, you might assume one or two, there seems to be a bunch of them sitting there that all took the same wrong turn and were plopped down in the middle of that field. And I think what we find in this passage is an indication, more a revelation of their heart more than anything else, because Pharisees do then as they do today. They have this tendency of overlooking their own negligence of God's standards as long as it's for a greater cause. And so while they were out and about and had not budgeted their walk or planned in advance the way they needed to, it was okay for them to bring condemnation upon others because it was for a greater cause, trying to help those other people who were out of line. So ignoring their own foolishness, they began bringing accusations upon Jesus and his disciples because Jesus was making them feel very uncomfortable. Now it is important again to reassert there are certain things we need to remember about the Pharisees. They're not all bad guys. In one sense, they take God seriously, at least to some degree. And here in this situation, they take God's law, at least the law of the Sabbath, somewhat seriously because they're trying to consider what is appropriate to do and what is not appropriate to do. And even while their attitudes stink, and even while their, perhaps their, their um, motivation stinks, there is something commendable about their uh, attitude at times, at least when they take God seriously. The problem is not that they take God seriously. The problem, though, is they began to use God and use God's standards Rather than as a means to come closer to God, they began to use God as a measuring stick to puff them up so that they could show how good they are as compared to other people based on God's standards. They were misusing God's gift of God's law and using it as a tool to promote their own self-righteousness. And because of that, Jesus, is, Jesus hears their complaint and he responds to them. 
And in his response, he gives us two important truths that we need to consider in order to understand how we may both have a correct perspective and order our lives in a way to gain the benefit of the way God has created the day, God has created us. Jesus first says, look, Sabbath was made for man. Man's not made for the Sabbath. In other words, God didn't make a day and say, you know, but the day's here. I need some people to do stuff so that it makes the day special. God created man after his own image. And yet, because we are not God, because we are simply creation, knowing that we have weaknesses and limitations, God knows that we need rest. And he created a day so that we could be rested and we can be restored and we can be renewed in him. The second thing that Jesus says is that I am the Lord of the Sabbath. He declares all authority over the day. He says, I'm the one who has mastered this day. I'm the one who's created this day. I'm the one who dictates this day. And so then he, declaring himself to be the authority, helps us to understand what is appropriate and not appropriate on that particular day. And these are very important truths to consider whenever we consider the day of rest, our pit stops, or Sabbath. Because I don't know if you have encountered people who are like these Pharisees or not, but I have on a number of occasions. I haven't really experienced it in this church. Every church has its own quirkiness, and that doesn't seem to be one of ours. But through the years, I've run into people who would fit in very well with these Pharisees. Taking the gift that has been given to us and then somehow using it as their own bling to show how cool, how good, how right they are. I had one colleague at one time who, recognizing that the traditional standard within, uh, within the Reformed Church is to say that there should be no recreation on the Sabbath day, decided that he didn't want to be one of the Pharisees and to be so uptight about it, and so he, he limited that and said, really, some recreation and certain things are certainly appropriate. He came up with a category I'd never heard of before when he said there should be no commercial recreation. In other words, you're free to do whatever you want as long as there was no money exchange or no commerce or anything that was taking place. In a discussion I had with him about that one time, he then I, I, I realized that one of his practices, I was just curious about it, was he would go home from church on Sundays and watch the Steelers play. And so I asked him, I mean, don't they show commercials on the TV that you watch? I mean, that would seem to be a commercial venture. I know you've got to pay to go to the game, and I know that on Sunday all those guys are getting paid. It seems like there's some commerce going on there. And to his credit, he thought about that, and he decided that he probably was inconsistent, and so he changed his practice. He said he began to tape the games and watch them on Mondays. <laughs> As if the NFL or any of its sponsors give a hoot whether you watch their commercials on Saturday, Monday, Sunday, or any other time. He was missing the point. There are some within traditions, church taking the Sabbath seriously that say, you know what, resting is not enough. Even taking a nap is actually not what the Sabbath is calling you to do. That that is actually kind of just physical rest. It's not spiritual rest, and so therefore it's not good enough. I encountered a guy that was like that as he was trying to come into a presbytery where I was uh, a member, and he was being examined coming into presbytery. And I'm not really sure all of what it was that just bugged me about the guy, but there were probably a lot of things. But he just seemed so full of himself. 
by the time we got to the question of the Sabbath, and he just swore that he and everyone in his household, he kept the Sabbath. No violations, nothing inappropriate, that only necessary works or acts of mercy. The necessary works, at least traditionally, were things like, you know, if you had a farm, you still had to milk the cows, uh, food had to be provided, and the acts of mercy, you hear the old ox in a ditch, which we don't have a whole lot of problem with, but if somebody you know, pulls off on the side of the road and you're, you're allowed to help them. So only necessary works and acts of mercy. And I'm not sure what it exactly was that possessed me to do it, but I raised my hand, and as he's standing before a group of 75, 80, 80 people being examined to come in, I told him I had a two-part question. And so he asked what my question was. I said, okay, well, do you believe that marital relations are appropriate on the Lord's Day? And if so, do you tell your wife that it's a necessary work or an act of mercy? He didn't answer me. Um, and that story, I do confess, probably says uh, maybe a little more about me than it does about him. But the whole point, you get the point is where I'm going, is the guy was miss, missing the point of the Sabbath, just as the Pharisees were missing the point. There's a lot, it's just very easy to be able to, to miss the point. And so Jesus gives us a corrective. The first thing it's important for us to understand is that Jesus tells us that the Sabbath is a gift from God. Sabbath is made for man. Man is not made for the Sabbath. It's important that we recognize that it was God who has given us that gift, even the fact that he has given us to us as a law, as a command. We need to be reminded at times that God's laws are not given to oppress us or to simply restrict us in some ways. God's laws are given as an expression of his personality and gifts of love to the people to whom he gives them. It's just like any good gift should be an expression of the personality of the giver and blessing to the person who receives it. The laws that God has given us, and specifically as we're looking at it today, the Sabbath law that God has given to us is not simply to mess up a day so that you can find at least one day in seven where you're bored to tears. Don't do anything and be restricted. It is a good gift, and Jesus is pointing that out when he's declaring man is not made for the day. The day is made because God, who has created us, loves us and made it for us. Why this gift? Well, because as all of us have experienced that this life is tiring and wearying, and we need rest. I've heard it said in this sense that tired is something that can be fixed with a good night's sleep. You work a good day, you have a full day, you're worn out at the end of the day, you close your eyes, you go to sleep, you wake up the next day, you're refreshed and renewed. Wearying, which is something that many of us experience, perhaps without even knowing it, is not fixed with sleep. But wearying just wipes you out, sucks the life and the joy out of you. And this life and all that we are engaged in is prone to do that. And God who created us, who loves us, realizing that, says, look, one way to overcome that is to not live your life at breakneck speed, not trying to keep with everything. In one day in seven, you will commit that day to a day of rest, a day that's created, a day off for you. And Pharisees, both old and new, somehow missed that point. 
Sinclair Ferguson describes Pharisees, whether it's old or new, in this way. Pharisees are like a committee of a golf club which has beautiful fairways. But in order to preserve the fairways from being chopped up with divots, they insist that all the golfers always take a drop and play their shots from the rough on the side of the fairways. So in other words, you hit the shot, you make the fairway, then you go pick up your ball and you walk over and you only hit it from the rough where you can't mess up their good fairways. And when St. Clair Ferguson points out, he says, golf courses like Sabbaths are meant to be enjoyed, not merely to be preserved. And so Pharisees who take the rules and the laws and try to puff themselves up and say, I'm good because I do this, they miss the entire point. The Sabbath is given to us as a gift because we need it, and it's an expression of God's love. But the Pharisees are not the only ones that miss the point. Anyone who neglects the Sabbath misses the point too. Anyone who says, you know what, sounds like a good idea, but I'm just too important. Thanks for the suggestion, God. Oh, it's a law. Well, thanks for your law, God, but you know what? This entire world will just fall apart if I'm not working today, if I'm not studying today, if I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing, what I think I need to do. God, you don't seem to understand that I am the apex upon which the entire world, at least my world, revolves. And if I'm to take the day off, it's just, just not a good thing. For anyone who says no thanks to God is saying no thanks to God giving us a gift. I believe God makes it a law because he knows that we are prone. And he says, I'm taking this Sabbath very seriously. And Jesus tells us, second for us to understand, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And we need to understand what he means by that. He's not giving blanket permission to just ignore and do what you want to do on the Lord's Day. As I hear over and over again throughout evangelical Christianity, we're under grace, not under the law, so I'm free to do whatever I please. Paul says, well, everything may be permissible, but not everything is beneficial. And frankly, while I'm not judged by the law, the law is still good. The law is actually doing its purpose. The law, when it's used properly, is good for us. And if we're going to understand what Jesus means by being the Lord of the Sabbath, then we need to understand what Jesus' attitude was both about the law and about the Sabbath day itself. And Jesus is pretty clear about that because in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so Jesus is saying, look, the whole idea that you can forget about the Sabbath because I'm under grace. I don't need to keep the law anymore. Jesus didn't do away with the law. He fulfilled it in the way that we're supposed to. He fulfilled it in a way that we'll touch on a little bit later, that we find everything that the law signifies in him when we come to meet him. And what was Jesus' attitude about the, about the Sabbath itself, the one that we no longer have to keep because either we're too important or because God has freed us from this? Now Luke 4 tells us this. Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. Apparently, Jesus didn't see as Lord of the Sabbath, as the one who has fulfilled the Sabbath, as the one who is the maker of the law, as something to be neglected. As one who is in his very nature God, but also became like us in his flesh and his humanity, and in his, he decided and realized that it's not just a matter of keeping the law, but the Sabbath is something to be kept. He, as a man, was in need of it, as well as the way that he was to honor God. 
Now, Jesus comes and corrects the Pharisees, not necessarily because their practices themselves were inherently wrong, but because their wrong notions about the Sabbath had turned a gift into a burden. And because it became a tool for measuring self-righteousness. And that needed to be corrected for the gift to be able to be experienced the way that it needed to be experienced. And so Jesus reclaims the Sabbath from the Pharisees by saying, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the one who fulfilled it. I'm the one who is the object of it. I'm the one who has created it. And I'm the one who has all authority over it. But the authority that Jesus possesses is to not do away with the, the importance of it, nor the practice of it, but to embrace it fully and to give it more meaning. Third thing, we've seen that Jesus has said that the, gift is a, the Sabbath is a gift that is given to us. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, but now we go back to the fact that it's a gift to us. What's the purpose of this gift? And the purpose of the Sabbath is renewal. In one sense, it's recreation. We are broken. We need to be restored. We need to be re renewed. And we need to re be recreated. And let's be honest. Most of what we call recreation doesn't recreate us, does it? It's like going on a long extended vacation and then you need to take time off of work in order to recover from it so that you have your energy back. And sometimes that's appropriate because you're experiencing new things on those vacations that you can't otherwise. And so you're the better and the richer for it even if your energy is sapped. But the reality is that we live our lives calling things recreation that drain our energies day in and day out, and sometimes we use the Lord's Day as the primary day in which we get to do those things when they're actually not recreating us in any way, shape, or form. Os Guinness was commenting on the, the subtle foolishness of our culture. And he says that we, in the Western world, and particularly in America, we worship our work, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. And we wonder why we are so worn out. Because the very purpose of the day that God has given is to restore us and to renew us, and we have all of our priorities all out of whack. And Jesus, when he declares that he is the Lord of the Sabbath and, he, and, and said the Sabbath was made for us, meaning there's a need for it, he's implying what we find elsewhere in the Scripture, that it's for the purpose of restoration. It's for renewal. It's for strengthening. The purpose of the Sabbath is not simply to stop doing things. It's to do something that is very practical, very necessary. Eugene Peterson defines the Sabbath in this way, and listen and see if it sounds like something that would be beneficial for you. The Sabbath is uncluttered time and space to distance ourselves from the frenzy of our own activities so we can see what God has been doing and what God is doing. In other words, we get so weary with our activities, the Sabbath that God has given to us as a gift, and said, look, this is serious business, so I'm going to make it a law, so that we can stop being part of the frenzy and renew our perspective and realize God who has been at work is still at work. The God who created us and knows us best has said, this is the way that you work, and this is the way that I love. And by embracing the love that is poured out upon us through the gift of God giving to us, and particularly Christ who is the Lord of the Sabbath and the fulfillment of the Sabbath, 
It's only when we are engaged in that and reminded of who God is that we are finding the renewal that we so desperately seek. Now, am I suggesting that the only appropriate thing to do on a Sabbath day is to show up for worship? Well, yeah, but that's job security. No, I'm kidding. Um, that's Worship is a necessary component, but there are different ways in which we worship. Worshiping as God's people, which is part of his command, part of his law, is vitally important because there's a way in which we are renewed that we cannot be renewed otherwise. And it's an important thing to remember as well because studies are indicating now American evangelicals are now, uh, they're no less committed to their church, but they are less committed to being in worship. And people who even just two, three years ago would have been weekly in worship unless they were providentially hindered, they're now, you know, two or three times a month. And we don't necessarily notice that, and it's not a matter of condemnation. It's just saying if God's created us and we need this, then we need to be able to benefit from what he's created us to do. But there are other ways in which we are renewed, and all of us may be different in that way. But we need to be asking ourselves is what we're calling recreation is actually, actually recreating. And we don't need to fall into the trap of the people who are pharisaical to define that for us. Another guy, I'm just making Presbytery sound so fun, but you know, you meet all sorts of interesting characters in a place like that. He came in, and he wasn't uptight or obnoxious, but still, he was trying to hold the firm line, and I asked him, and he believed that certain recreations were appropriate. And so I asked him this question with a much nicer tone than I did the other guy. Does he believe it's appropriate to walk through the woods? Sure. Do you believe it's appropriate to walk through the fields? Sure. If walking through the woods, you see kind of a, a, a stick that you can use as a staff, is it appropriate to pick up and walk with it? Sure. It's just is appropriate to swing it a little bit. Sure. Is it appropriate to put a little ball in front of that stick? No. Now, when I play golf, I'm walking through the woods anyway, but that's besides the point. But, and I will say this. For me, golf is not an appropriate thing to do because it does not recreate me. It expands my vocabulary. Most things demonstrates my short temper. Golf is a very good game other days of the week, but I'm not renewed by it. I'm broken by it. And so for me, it's not an appropriate thing to do. My intent today is not to give a list of what is and is not appropriate because I, I, it, we just can't. But it is to challenge you to say, what you are doing, does it really bring recreation? Does it bring restoration? Does it bring renewal? in your life, or have you just chosen not to think about it, or let somebody else think about it for you? See, we are in need of being renewed. Life barrages us constantly. I know that most of us like to think of ourselves as like Rocky Balboas. We'll just take on the opponent, even if the opponent is bigger and stronger and tougher, but with our natural fortitude and just stick to it, eventually we'll either overcome or at least we'll subdue it enough to earn the respect but life doesn't respect us, and life doesn't stop, and you will not beat life. And life around us continues to go at a speed that we cannot control, and you can try to keep up with it if you want, but you cannot keep up that pace, and eventually the waves are going to bring collapse into your life. And the only thing that we can do is to then find out how we're designed and how we are able to not only withstand, but overcome in another way. And God has said that the way that we overcome is not by pressing on and being faster and stronger with more endurance than anybody else. It's to recognize that we are weak and that we are frail and that we need to rest. And God has established a day for us to do that. 
where we not only stop the activities that we're normally engaged in, but we seek his face, come into his presence, are restored, and then find other ways in which we recognize his glory, that he is at work, and getting away from that frenzy. And in that regular practice, we find the renewal that we so desperately want. And yet, for some reason, we just don't like the idea of somebody saying, I've got to take this day off. It's foolishness. I mean, how many of us wish we, you know, oh, it's such a busy week, I just can't wait till I can take a day off. Well, how about taking one day in every seven? Are you kidding me? That's too legalistic. We need to recognize God and his love for us has given to us a gift, the gift of a Sabbath. And the Sabbath is a rhythm which we need to embrace because the Sabbath is a rhythm around which we build our lives and work our schedules and find the renewal and the freedom to experience joy and strength and peace that we so desperately long for and search for in our activity. By embracing this, it's a recognition that we are, it's an interesting paradox of our faith. We recognize in stopping that God is sovereign and God provides. And so our activity is to not be engaged in the activity, which is an act of trust of God and saying, God, I will trust you not only to provide for my needs if I'm not working constantly, but I will honor you at your word as if you are the one that has great wisdom. And I will come before you, Lord. The question is, how do we do it? First, it's necessary for us to prepare in advance. I mean, we know we want that experience. But we need to prepare because there are so many things that need to be done. And so things that we know in advance that we want to have that day off, you prepare yourself. If you know you're going to be traveling and it's going to be taking you, prepare before it's time to do it. The same is true for preparing for a Sabbath. Knowing that you need the day, you do as many of the things that you are able to in advance so that you have fewer things that need to be done on the day that you want to rest, so that you're free. It prepares the rest in one sense before you actually do it as well. In order to gain the benefits from it, you prepare yourself in recognizing the gift that's given to us. And then the second thing is that you seek God. Because Jesus said, look, come to me, all of you who are tired and who are heavily burdened, and I will give you rest. And Jesus said that because he is our rest. He's the one who's fulfilled everything that we're striving for so that we'd be accepted for God. He's the one who's mastered everything. And Jesus says, come to me. Come and seek my face. And what you really are looking for is found in me, not through the absence of activity, not through the presence of activity, it's found in the person who has given himself for us, declared his authority over this day, and invited us to be the beneficiaries. The challenge for you today is this. What are you doing to be restored? And are you willing to take God seriously and take him up and receive his gift, not just today, but as a rhythm in your life. What steps need to be taken that you and I can experience what God has for us? Father, we do thank you for this day, for it is truly the day that you have made, that we may rejoice in it and in you. And I pray that you would open our eyes as well as our hearts to whatever it is that's hindering us from experiencing all that you would have for us to experience. Set us free from ourselves as well as from this world 
even as you have set us free from our sin through Christ Jesus. Renew us in spirit and body. We pray that we may rejoice and rejoice in you. I pray all this in Christ.